The Energy Gang is brought to you by Renasola, a tier one solar cell and module manufacturer with a decade of experience in the clean tech industry. Renasola is your complete procurement provider of clean energy solutions. The company is now offering a bundled solution for residential installers looking to reduce procurement costs and drive down the cost of projects. To find your local representative, go to renasola.us or give them a call at 415-570-2647. Ahmad Shatila worked in the chip industry for 18 years before becoming CEO of the semiconductor manufacturer MEMC in 2009. As a veteran of the industry, Shatila well understood the difficulties of the silicon wafer business. Semiconductors are a commodity, and the company was facing intense pricing pressure from Chinese competitors. Shatila had hard choices to make about where to steer the company, so he undertook an internal review of the semiconductor business. You know, when I became CEO, um, I, my reflection after reviewing it uh, with the executive team at the time on the board, and I visited 150 companies just to learn end-to-end what's going on, I felt it's an energy play. It's not a technology play by any means. And the question was, should we double down on it or should we exit? Being an energy company is materially different from being a commodity technology provider in a hyper-competitive, low-margin business. Keeping the company relevant meant moving further downstream. So shortly after taking over as CEO of MEMC, Shatila started searching for an acquisition target. He zeroed in on Sun Edison, the pioneer of the power purchase agreement for solar PV. And the reason is because I, I, I looked at many companies, but Sun Edison had the right platform, the right thinking. I think Jigger Shah and, 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 and Brian Robertson and the other four founders really have created a formula that is very interesting for me. The PPA model gave me the idea that one day we will have consistent cash flows. It's just that contract is a lot better than being on a treadmill, selling product one quarter after the next. And so it was a dream, but at the, at the time, Sun Edison was only 38 megawatts. And we were selling 800 megawatts worth of wafers. But we got lucky, so we went from 38 to 160 and so on and so forth. Now this year we'll do more than 2 gigawatts. And, and that's how we entered it. We went after being an energy play rather than technology play. Today, Sun Edison is branching out beyond solar and into wind, microgrids, and is eyeing hydro and even natural gas. The development arm became so important for the health of the company, MEMC adopted the Sun Edison name in 2013. So how does Shatila see the business evolving? I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is the Energy Gang podcast from Green Tech Media. In this bonus episode, we've got an interview with Sun Edison's CEO on project development strategies, emerging markets, battery storage, and vertical integration. The gang is not here with me at the moment, but we'll have our normal podcast later in the week. I sat down with Shatila at GTM's recent solar summit. He is truly one of the most honest and open CEOs in the business, which is why I'm bringing you the conversation in its entirety. We started off the interview by talking about what he means when he says Sun Edison is going after the energy play and not the technology play. In energy play, there's three elements, at least in power, not energy, but in power. The development of projects, the execution, and owning. In owning, there's two pieces uh, financially owning the project and servicing the project. In, in execution, there is EPC, engineer, procure, and construct, but also the technology. Uh, where we focus uh, is the areas where it's very complex. We like to work on things that are incredibly difficult. And the reason is because we know if we are able to figure them out, we'll make a lot of money out of them. And we shy away from things that are easy because we know that anybody can then make them. 
Sometimes some things are very difficult, but we know we cannot do it because we don't have the talent. We'll try to partner with others. What do you What do you mean by that exactly? What would be a hard project? You know, right now, like we're in wind, we do not. Um, we will never do wind turbines. In terms of uh, development, development is very complex. And to be able to do it locally and internationally at large scale, you cannot have everything inside your company. You need to work with brilliant people that have local connections, but then you can use your platform to partner with them and take their projects and evolve them into operating assets over time. Um, Another difficult play would be getting into battery storage manufacturing and you made the recent acquisition of solar grid storage and are thinking about more acquisitions and partnerships as you uh, unfold your storage strategy so i would assume that the manufacturing component of batteries is another one of those difficult plays that you just wouldn't want to get into well actually i, w- I would also call it is not that important either the manufacturing of the battery uh, itself but if you want to be in that business, then do what Tesla does or what GE does. Like you have to really be a one step above the cell manufacturing and the battery manufacturing. It's the sophistication on top of that that is incredibly valuable. And I'm not sneezing on reducing the cost of a battery. Reducing battery technology costs is very important and not easy. But I think it's a commodity because at the end, it's all of them they're going to store. So it becomes a cost play. Where we want to play is in the business model, how to use a battery storage to transform the energy systems, and that's where we want to be. So the solar grid storage acquisition, what does that give you? Is it basically lessons learned? I mean, was that a a talent acquisition, or do you see a project portfolio there that uh, could be built upon? Well, you know, when when you had your podcast with uh, Jigger, you you and Jigger were debating why we did it, and you got it right. It's really we 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 bought it because we want to learn. They have they're smart people that have gone through multiple cycles of learning, and they have a small pipeline. So we uh, we're humble about it. We we don't know anything. At, at some point, we didn't know anything. We've been playing with storage for a year and a half, and by getting that team with us which we know them pretty well, and they have a great reputation, albeit a very small team, and it's a small acquisition, we can learn nine months' worth of lessons or a year instead of us doing it by ourselves and accelerate our time to market. That's why we did it. How important is storage for rural electrification? And is that more important for storage uh, in the short term when you consider building out these microgrids and so forth? The storage market here in the U.S. is very nascent, difficult to get into, uh, but in rural areas where there is no access to electricity, certainly storage is a more immediate play. Would you say that's the case? I I would agree with that. I think, you know, storage is very valuable in certain places, but in other places it is fundamental. In rural electrification, it's fundamental. If you don't have it, you do not have a system at all. You can be in residential system in the United States without storage, but storage will add more value. In, as I told you last time when you did the interview in Germany, today it is valuable to have storage, but it's not essential. But by 2019, it becomes essential because you cannot be competitive with solar without self-consumption. So you need storage. And that's how it's emerging. So today when Shale was asking me about it, oh, well, you're everywhere in, in storage. Well, you know, storage is like driving a car. Uh, if you don't have it, you're, you as an energy company, especially a company like ours that is in so many different places, will limit itself. 
storage really allows us to expand the market and give more value, and that's why we use it in so many segments. You said today there are a few things that make you nervous as a CEO. The explosion of electric vehicles or the potential explosion of electric vehicles, the explosion of battery storage, people who are able to make money off of building services on top of those technologies. How does the potential of those markets guide the decisions you want to make as a CEO? Very tough question. And I I, I want to be articulate about it because it is something that obsesses me. And I don't have a good answer. When I look, but I look sometimes at these mega trends, and I start really debating intensely within the company, and with people like yourself and others, like what is the best known method? How do you make money? I'll give you one one data point. You know, when, when solar becomes so low cost, many solar companies will cease to exist, because many solar companies make money today because solar is a is not because of the the government support that we get, but the assumption that there will be still some oxygen in that system. But when the cost is $5,000 to power the whole house in solar, how do you make money on that? You cannot be a solar company to do it. Clearly, you cannot be. So you have to become an energy services company. There's no way around it. And these are the ideas. I'm not saying that I'm interested in that kind of solution, but that's how you have to think about it. You have to look at the, these mega trends and figure out how do you make money. And, and that's actually what happened to us. If you look, um, Stephen, we went back. we never been in Germany in solar. In 2009, Carlos Dominic, who's the leader of San Edison at the time, after Jigger left and, and Brian Robertson left, and, and that's why I bought the company from, because Jigger was not in the company when I bought uh, San Edison, although Jigger helped me, and I met him and, and all that. He and I agreed we'll never go to Germany in the short term because there's no sun. It doesn't make sense. In the long run, it's not going to be a real market. And we focused heavily on many other areas. India, we focused on on U.S. We focused on Italy, and it backfired. Uh, We did that too. Uh, So when when we try to invest, we try to look at the long term. Is it a sustainable business model that we can have? And, and unfortunately, because of the world, how it's changing so fast, it's dizzying. Some things are really dizzying. Like there's a lot of changes. And some of these megatrends, we're not the driver. So battery storage costs or energy system reduction in, in cost is not under our control, some of it. And how do you ride a horse when you don't control it? So that, that's, everybody has to ask these questions. So beyond battery costs, what are some of the megatrends you think are most important? Uh, solar costs is coming down very aggressively. Um, it will be co- so right now. If you buy a multi-crystalline uh, panel, uh, seventy-two cell for utility scale, it's three hundred and five, three hundred and ten watts, and fifty-five cents. But in two thousand thirty, it will be thirty-two cents, or thirty-five cents, or thirty cents, and and it will be four hundred fifty watts, and it will be mono. By 2030, it will be 20 pennies or 25 pennies at 600 watts. And, and I don't understand every single detail about the roadmap. I mean, we have ideas how to improve spectral response and energy absorption and all that, and, and efficiency by using direct band gap material and all that. So we have ideas. But by 2020, we know the exact roadmap. That's a mega trend because at that moment, having solar be so low cost that you can move manufacturing to Arizona because it is so low cost to produce energy. If solar is at one or two pennies a kilowatt hour at a time, how, how would the world change? So that's another megatrend. The other megatrend for me is electric vehicles, like I said in the conference. You have a, 
a, a, an investment that is in trillions of dollars a year that only gets utilized 4%. Uh, Stefan Heck, who's a professor at Stanford and did the book on resource revolution with Matt Rogers, he has the statistics. We use our cars only four hours, four percent of the time. Most of the time, actually, we're sitting in traffic. Ninety-six percent of the time, the car is parked. We're spending four trillion dollars as as human beings on on automotive and vehicles that are sitting there all the time. You're telling me someone's not going to figure it out, especially if that car now can store electricity and produce it. That is a mega trend or a giga trend that we have to watch. And that's something that you would want to get into to figure that out. What exactly do you mean when that's a mega trend that worries you? Well, well look, um, we entered solar development, right? And now we're in wind. And I, I openly say that we'll be in hydro and potentially gas and gas to open up more markets for renewables because gas is a great storage device sometimes. If at some point the best way to own the energy markets is to lease cars, we'll be open to it. I'm not saying that's not what I'm going to do. And I'm not saying that that's how the market will be. I'm not saying that that's the right business model. But if you want to play in energy, you have to ride the wave. You cannot be sitting there. Otherwise, you're going to get crushed. Let's, let's look at a great company that really today is, is got harmed irreparably, Nokia. Nokia had a great executive team, visionary leaders, software. They had channel management in India better than any channel management of any corporation that ever existed before them and after them. They had great products. They had software Symbian in, in the developing so that they can rival anybody, trying to move themselves into a software company. But they missed the boat. And in a company called Apple, who defined itself as a software company, not a hardware company. They do hardware to package their software, to give you a great experience completely crush them. I don't want to be Nokia. That's what worries me. That's why I talk like that, and that's why in, uh, inside our company we debate these issues. And the way we get to a good solution is we debate them with a lot of smart people, and there's no one person doing it. So if you hear Carlos Dominic or Brian Wobbles, our CFO, or Paul Gaynor or Pashupati Gopalan or Pancho Perez, many, many of our senior executives, that debate is happening all the time. Does that analogy apply to the utility sector. Are utilities going to be pushed out of the market, or will they be strong players in this energy services revolution? There is an important value that the utilities bring, and we should never forget that. To even think that we can replace them or do their job or try to disrupt their market and, be, and do it unfairly, I think is just a wrong, wrong thinking. Full stop. Any company, albeit utility or ExxonMobil or Apple, has to really innovate to continue to move forward. Because something has been going on for 50 years doesn't mean it's going to happen the next five years. The issue with, with uh, utilities and all monopolies in the world, they, they have two risks. And that's why we, you see, if you, if you look um, at our own analysis, what we're trying to do is build consistent cash flows by signing 20-year contracts and 50-year contracts. And this way, we have consistent cash flows, and hence we have a very valuable, low-risk entity. We're not on a treadmill. What happened to Nokia will never happen to us because it will never collapse within two years. It might happen within seven years. The biggest risk to our business, and Monopoly is even worse because they are also have these consistent cash flows, but they are also immune to any competition, is two things, arrogance and lack of agility. 
And we have implemented in our culture three years ago, trained every employee. And I'm a black belt on culture. That means I've gone three weeks worth of training. And we train people systematically. We implemented two words, having humility and being humble. So as long as utilities, which are monopolies, and Sanadison, which has 20-year contracts and trying to build these consistent cash flows, we are agile and we're not arrogant, we'll be okay. But what kills usually monopolies is arrogance and lack of agility because you are doing all right. Why should you change? And that's what happens to all of them. That's why in economic analysis they show that monopolies always fail at the end. They always collapse on them, upon themselves. And, and usually the leadership has to steer them from that eventuality. Sooner or later it's going to happen to any company. What's your opinion on the spectrum of executives in utility culture that are either embracing or fighting this change? I think all CEOs that I met, and I didn't meet all of them or even many of them, but I met around five or six, they, are, they know what's going on. They have a feel for it. They understand what needs to, to do, but they're hampered by three things. They're hampered by the public utility commissions. They're hampered by the credit agencies. And they're, had a, they're hampered by their investors. All these three entities want a low-risk affair. The investors have invested in utilities because they want zero risk. The public utility commissions... They don't want them to go to China or disrupt the market or move into another space. And the credit agencies, they will downgrade them if they start taking what they perceive as more risk, like solar or distributed generation or residential. Add to that that utilities, the way their leadership have evolved over time, is they promote people who don't take risk. So when the CEOs want to change, and some of them I met, they want to make a change. Even their executives are resisting that change. Add to that the, the board and the investors and all that. So it is hard. It's not easy. I actually have a lot easier job in my view because the, the, the space is open for me. No one expects for me to satisfy all, all, these, all these constituencies. So I call actually utilities, they're in a golden cage. It's golden because it's a monopoly and they make nice profits and they're mandated to make nice profits, but it's a cage. They cannot fly out of it easily. What else can you do with your long-term relationships with customers? How deep into a business can you get? We've seen interesting partnerships around uh, uh, pairing energy management software with solar. SunPower has really attempted to do this uh, very recently, partnering with Enernock. And when I was talking to Tom Werner today in our fireside chat, he said he wants to get as deep into the home and business as possible. And all the major solar and energy services companies are trying to do the same thing. What does that landscape look like to you? And how sticky can you make your relationship with both your very large and smaller customers? Yeah. So, you know, SunPower actually is a great solutions and product company. Sunadison, we're not a product company. I know exactly what that is. I worked for 18 years in product and solution company. And, and I grew up doing that for a living. And I have decided not to be that. And the reason is because it's not the heritage where we have come from. And I don't want to make money that way. Other people will make money that way. And it's incredible. And, and penetrating deeply the home and the commercial space in that regard because customers are saying, I don't want to buy solar, I want to buy a solution. 
that's very valuable but that's not where we're going this is not i mean we dabble with it but this is not what i have right now i do want to go after large accounts because if you look at some accounts you know they're spending a billion dollar a year on electricity bills but no one is calling on them the way i called on them in the semiconductor space you know the ceo there's a there's a management relationship matrix the vps know each other uh, you have a roadmap with them to evolve their, their cost roadmap on electricity. I don't think we're sophisticated as an industry enough to do that. Is that also because people are not necessarily sophisticated energy consumers as well? Not big corporations. If you actually look at some big corporations, when you spend a billion dollars on electricity, you have a huge team trying to do it. It's just that we in solar, uh, we have come from the technology space and have come from trying to change the world on climate change, not to try to give a solution for someone to be very successful. And we have used RPS and the ITC and, and mandated uh, usage of solar to push the solution. But really, industries have to shift to more account management and consumer products a lot more than what we have gone from what we what we came from as an industry we have to change a lot and and you know the the leadership teams have to also change because even in our company there's uh, not many great salespeople you know like really corporate strategic account manager that for me is a definition there's actually business processes that you do when you do it called like conceptual selling or strategic selling or uh, focus selling i mean these things we have trained our semiconductor division to do it. And, and we don't have it in the solar industry at all. There's, there's that sophistication, and, and it's not there. But that's where we need to evolve and go. And that's how we've been very successful in Chile. In Chile, the reason why we were able to sign PPAs and others can't, because we have a corporate account team. The leadership there, they're great in selling to CEOs and speaking, the, seeing the world from their side. Not that I want to give them solar. We look at their cost structure, how they're organized, and sell them the way they want to use it. Is that mostly mining companies? Mining and others. Some of them I can't divulge today because we're in negotiations, but it's different industries too in Chile. Because the, the cost of solar is so much lower than anything else. People want it. And... Does the falling price of oil and diesel prices, does that impact some of these projects that you're signing in remote areas and on, uh, on the spot market? Zero. Zero. Actually, I showed it in the Capital Markets Day. And some people started to believe it. I even seen on TV people using our data. What we showed is there's no correlation with the solar at all, sorry, with oil at all, and in gas is negatively correlated. That means as gas pricing goes down, solar goes up. Of course, I don't believe that data because it's only three, four years worth of statistics, but it shows that there's no correlation. And, and we, have never, we have never lost a deal the last six, seven months. No one ever even talks about it. In, in all, and we are, like everywhere, in most countries, we're negotiating so many different deals and so many different channels. It never comes up. And the same can be said for the projects that you're developing in India and planning for West Africa. Kerosene and diesel prices are still high enough that, that these microgrid projects and energy access projects make sense? In, in India, diesel is subsidized. But by the time it comes to the, to, to the people on the ground, it goes through so many hands that it's not subsidized anymore. So we don't see that at all. 
And in India, on big, large-scale projects, the real competition is coal. And we have shown the government in July of, of last year that the solar uh, cost in 15, 2015 will be equivalent to imported coal at $65 a ton of coal. And we, we were pretty, pretty actually influential on their policy, let's say it this way. And, and if they didn't see those numbers, they wouldn't have announced massive uh, increases in, 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 in commitments. You said you're developing 100 microgrid projects this year? Is that yes. t- And a, that re- a million people you're going to reach? It's between half a million and a million people. It depends on because each microgrid might take care of 1,000 to 4,000 people depending on, on how many villages around it and, and what's the size of that microgrid. You know, so, so because of that, it will range that way. But it's big numbers. And you said that many of these villages have uh, potential access to the grid. Um, they might be connected to industrial units, but the houses themselves don't have electricity. Will the microgrids eventually be integrated into the broader grid, or are these standalone projects? How do you think that will evolve? For us, the way that we're doing microgrids is we will not go through the grid at all. We'll just go do our own. What I was saying is something actually I heard from a minister in India around two, three years ago, three years ago. And basically people, they had these uh, transmission lines and people were, were stealing the copper because they were not powered, they're just built, and they're not connected to the villages. And, and it's not about India. All governments, they use statistics that are very, I would say, optimistic to say that, yeah, we have 90% penetration of electricity. In reality, is it's not really connected to the, to the homes. So the real statistics are a lot worse than people think. I want to talk about vertical integration very quickly, and you mentioned the contrast between Sun Edison and Sun, and Sun Power's business model. A lot of people talk about vertical integration in a very monolithic way, and I'm just curious if you had to break down the differences between a Sun Edison, a Sun Power, and a solar city, how would you sort of describe Sun Edison's business model compared to those two companies that people often compare you to in terms of vertical integration and your size? Yeah, we're very different companies. I mean, all, all these companies are successful, clearly. They're the leaders in the industry. We, the, the way I look at it is um, there's a tremendous value in agility, tremendous value in flexibility. And when you're vertically integrated, you need to ensure that not one step dominates the whole equation. Because if you're vertically integrated and it's fixed vertical integration, then you are as strong as your weakest link. Like a solar city would be a fixed, great, vertically integrated company, right? For example, a company like Solar City is fixed integrated on because of the construction crews that they have. So that's their weakest link if it emerges to be in the future. I don't know. I really don't know, right? But that's I don't like that because I have done that in my life and I failed in it. And I know it's, it's not. We used to have a machine in my previous company that is like incredibly fast and perfect, but the reality is the uptime on it was only 43% because all the time something will break in it. And because of that, I learned that there's value and flexibility. In the case of um, Sun Edison, for example, if you look at it, we sell polysilicon by itself, the wafer by itself. We do the modules by itself. We buy modules from outside. We use thin films. We use high efficiency. We use everything. And because of that, we're able to move in and out and support our strongest point, and that's why we have gone from number 20 in downstream to being twice or three times as large as the largest person. Actually, our pipeline is the true pipeline, the way we calculate it like based on true contracts 
or signed LOIs is probably 5x the next person because we allowed our strongest team to dominate the equation in the company versus getting the weakest link to do it. So if you, for example, vertically integrated, then your, 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 your weakest link dominates you. For example, if you don't have enough capacity, then you can't ramp the business. Then if you only go through your sales channel, then if your sales channel is weak, then your factory is underutilized. And that cannot be good for shareholders and it cannot be good for the company in the long run. I, I really believe that deeply. Um, what's the process of buying up projects and developing projects and putting them into the Terraform Yield Co.? How aggressively are you out on the street looking for more projects to put into the Yield Co.? Well, look, um, it's very simple. You buy a project at 10x cash flow, and it's worth 25x in a Yield Co. You tell me. I mean, it's, it's like for, for us, a simplified equation. I used to sell a project. Now it's worth twice as much. If now today I sell the same project to Terraform at the same price that I used to sell it before, but I own half the cash flows because of the IDR structure that I have, the incentive distribution rights. So effectively, I have doubled the price of my engine. And not only I have doubled the price of my development engine, but now I can also acquire projects operating assets from others. So because of that, we quadrupled the true value of the company just by that design. What's the hardest decision you've ever had to make as CEO of Sun Edison or MEMC? Actually, I'll tell you about the stupidest decision I ever made. <laughs> you know, um, so we had the highest cost of polysilicon in the world. People thought we had the lowest. Our investors thought that we have the lowest cost in the world because we have FBR and Pasadena. And the cost was $70 a kilo. It was devastating, like really to walk into that equation and be that. And, you know, we reduced it from 70 to $38 within a year period by maybe being more productive, proving safety, so on and so forth. But because I was rushing, as I'm ramping San Edison, I'm rushing to reduce cost to circumvent that structural high cost in, in chemical plants. Chemical plants are easy. You have to have the most advanced technology in them, the largest scale, putting in the right country where the labor cost is low, and ensure that you don't spend a lot of money on feedstock. Four elements. Because I didn't have them in my Italian plant and my small Texas plant, I tried to circumvent that by building a wafering facility in Kuching, Malaysia. And I, try, and I used very advanced technology. And I always say I because I pushed for it. I really was the sole decision maker in pushing very aggressively. So we use like something called Big Daddy, which is a 1600 kilogram DSS reactor, which is like 4X what was in production at that time. And I tried to use diamond wire on multi-crystalline wafers, which is very hard to do because I wanted to circumvent the high poly cost so the company doesn't collapse. And that backfired because the technology didn't work in time. And we, we almost harmed the company forever because of that. So that's the stupidest decision I made. In, in retrospect, I should have fought the battle on polysilicon and waited and waited and not jeopardize the company trying to circumvent this issue. I think I was too paranoid. I should have been less paranoid and just deal with it the way it was. And I assume the best decision was acquiring Sun Edison? The best decision that I ever made is to be disciplined on development. I never, never compromise the development team. A lot of people laid off their development organizations during the downturn. 
I stayed the course. A one key decision that we made, all of us as a team, of course, everybody gave me different opinions, and, and at the end, we made, we all of us made the decision, is to not to lay off our Madrid organization during the depth of crisis where it, Italy completely disappeared and we had no business in Europe. And because they were elite forces, I kept them under payroll. And from there, we leapfrogged into Latin America and the rest is history. And that have re-energized the company. And if you look at our senior, most senior leaders in the company, they all came out of there. So that's probably, that being disciplined, that knowing that development is what we call inside the company the head of the snake. If you control the head of the snake, you control the whole industry. So if you have, if you own the project, you decide who plays and who doesn't play the game. I never compromise on that. I never called that team EPC. I never made the PNL with zero margin. I never told them that they only have to sell modules from our factory. That is probably the best decision we made as a team, is really be disciplined and support the development team. And that is the end of our bonus episode. I hope you found the interview insightful. We'll be back as normal later in the week. In the meantime, you can find all our episodes at greentechmedia.com slash podcast and subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher Radio. We'll catch you soon. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Renesola for supporting the show. I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is the Energy Gang Podcast from Green Tech Media. Green Tech Media.